the Forged and Unbroken podcast. Um, I think the first time that I like kind of came across your page was during some, somebody in the fire service had shared something that you were putting out there. I remember it grabbed my attention because obviously you're connected with the fire department circles. And I mean, right out the gate, I was like, no, you have some really awesome things to say. You make it incredibly relatable. And then once you see what you're doing and putting out there, it's not just like real down to earth information that we like that's tangible and we can use it, but it, you're also like looking at the big picture. So you yourself are focusing on like the physical and mental wellness. It's not just like, Hey, I'm a therapist. I'm counseling. I'm also holding up my end of the bargain. I'm working out. I'm eating good food. Here's a day in the life of, of what I'm doing here on my end in my profession. And then also, you know, I get a front seat view for what's happening in the fire service and public safety. And, um, I, don't know, I just thought it was really refreshing. So I appreciated that. And I appreciate what you're putting out there. So, and again, Thank thanks you. for sitting with me and, and kind of hammering yeah. some of these things out that we're doing. Oh yeah. I'm stoked to be here. Thank you for thinking of me. Yeah, for sure. What, um, so if you could just give us a quick rundown of like your street cred, like what, what is it that, uh, that you're about and what is it that you do and what's your passion and, and yeah, floor is yours. Yeah. So, um, I am an associate marriage and family therapist, which, um, means that I'm extremely close to my licensing exam. Um, so right now I'm underneath the supervisor. Um, and as a, as a therapist, we have to get 3000 hours after we graduate grad school of training and all of this. So I dove, um, head first straight into the first responder field. Um, when I was in grad school, I was in a relationship with the first responder fireman and that kind of is what piqued my interest. And I grew up with my dad being a police officer. So, um, already having that, I guess, cultural experience firsthand. I, I dove um, into a lot of trainings when I was in grad school. So um, I have my first responder um, training done. Um, I did that when I was in grad school and I keep up on that. It's just a course that you can take. Um, and then I'm EMDR trained, which I use a lot in my um, sessions. Um, I have my own private practice, and in the next couple of months, I'll be sitting for my licensing exam. So I will then be completely out on my own um, from underneath the supervisor as well. Yeah, very cool. Well, congrats on that. You're, you know, see, see the finish line up ahead, right? Yeah, it's been long, but it's been good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's awesome. So, I mean, you, yeah, you have a front receipt to public safety. I didn't realize your father was, uh, you said police? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Super yeah. cool. So yeah, we work so closely together. Um, before we were, um, getting on this call, I was, I, was point, I came across just some stuff from, uh, FEMA, like a government website and was saying that, uh, up to 92% of firefighters say that stigma is absolutely one of the major reasons that they don't seek mental health. I mean, 92% is a massive number. And I, myself, I can totally relate to that. Um, I've, got almost 20 years in the fire service and I remember the fire service of 20 years ago is wildly different from now but it's still kind of present and um public safety is five times more likely to experience like PTSD and and uh depression type symptoms stemming from what we see compared to the normal population so those are just two numbers to throw out there really quick just from you and your experience what are some things that you're seeing 
whether it's data or just, you know, you can do, you can ballpark it and just generalizations for what you see with your practice. What, what are some of the major things that you're seeing? Cause yes, PTSD and acute incidents are, are an easy one to grab on, but there's so many layers to the mental health, especially with the fire service. So could you, I mean, just threw up yeah. a big one to you. What's yeah. How can you pick that apart? Yeah, I have a, there are many layers in that. So I have a lot of thoughts. Um, I'll start with what you started with. So very accurate, yes. Um, I think that many people that are in the first responder field are not coming forward for therapy. I mean, more so now, but it's very new um, because of that stigma. And I think that that stigma really comes from this idea of we signed up for this job, so we should be able to handle it. And um, it's the same thing with debriefs, right? I'll ask some of my clients like, okay, did you have a debrief at work after that? Oh yeah, yeah, but it's not helpful. And they'll ask why and they go, well, because you don't want to be the first person that's like breaking down saying you couldn't handle it or that it was emotional for you or that you were struggling. Right. So everyone's trying to like stay strong for one another. But in reality, everyone is struggling in their own ways. So stigma, 100 percent, that is um, a huge factor in why people aren't coming forward to, to work on their mental health. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then to address the second parts of that. Um, I see all kinds of stuff. So I think if you were to like look through a window and be like, oh, what does a first responder therapist see? You would think, oh yeah, PTSD. They probably talk about their calls. I do get some of those, um, but the majority of the stuff I get is relational stuff. Um, This day-to-day like anxiety, um, lack of motivation, you know, struggling to enjoy coworkers, um, very interpersonal stuff that is very much so a part of the first responder field on a heavier level than most people I would have to say because of the the family aspect of it, right? It's like, you know, it, it's a family outside of your other family. So you're switching between two different families. So you might have issues at home with your, you know, your wife and your kids. And then you might also have issues at your other home at the department with all your coworkers. There's a lot of interpersonal stuff. And then on top of that, there are heavy calls that sit with a lot of my first responders or, um, I think what's interesting is I'll get a lot of the, I seem to attract the older, like, is the word crunchy, but like like going into retirement or like the older guys that would never, ever reach out for mental health. They're finally reaching out, which is so cool. So I get a lot of them uh, as clients and I love that. Um, They're usually really crabby. They don't want to share a whole lot. And so I use a lot of sarcasm and humor so that we get comfortable. And I'm like, you don't want to be here. It's totally fine. Like, I get it. Um, But one of the things is a lot of times they'll be like, you know, I never thought to debrief these these things before more than we do at work. But as they start talking about it, they go, wow, that sat with me for 20 years. I still feel that way when I drive by that intersection. Or I still sometimes have dreams about that child that I pulled out of a pool. Like, they don't sometimes they compartmentalize it so nicely that they don't realize it's stacked up so high. And so when we start to take things off the shelf together, like, Whoa. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, you, wow. You said, <laughs> you said so many things that I know I and uh, people I've spoken to can relate to. Um, I'm thinking about the people in retirement age, uh, with, with retirement age in their career where it's almost like a, I wouldn't say a failure or a launch, but it, there's the realization that like there's some of that identity loss. Um, they're going into the next thing, but then all the memories come swelling back as they're getting, as they have one foot out the door. 
And I certainly see that um, within the jurisdiction, within the main Atlantic region where I work. Um, that's a major one. That's a tough uh, departure because going from like that you know, public safety life to personal life. And then also, like you said, personal relationships, they're going, they're going to be home a lot more <laughs> and they're going to be with their spouses or partners or kids a lot more than they were before. Then there's a loss of identity plus all the things that they hadn't worked on. Um, so I can see tons of that. I was yeah. reminded of a, uh, story where we at work, um, this was years and years ago, dealt with somebody who had, sorry for the graphic story, but the, uh, lit themselves on fire. You're good. I sit with the graphic all day long. Yeah, right. Sure. <laughs> so they, uh, lit themselves on fire and jumped off a bridge into the middle of a highway. And, okay. you know, we treated care, did all the things person was still alive for a few days very graphic scene and we had like an old vietnam war era vet who was also a fire officer i was like all right let's do the debrief how are we all doing and i remember one of the senior guys that we all looked up to was getting ready to actually like no you know what that was a tough one let's talk about this and as he was literally inhaling to be like now nah, that was messed up the guy was like good we and he said exactly what you said if this is what you signed up for so you got to deal with it get back on the rig and I remember mm. like that just for the 20 year guy that shook him a little bit. And then you've got a bunch of five to seven year firefighters. And that was one of those things that shut down communication for a lot of guys for a long time. So just that one singular incident had ripple effects downstream. Oh gosh. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I hate hearing that. Yeah. It was funny. I think behind the scenes though, over time, we all kind of got together and kind of protected ourselves in that way. So we made it work. It was certainly a learning experience, but I think that, I only use that to say that I think there's, there has been a lot of that. We are certainly getting better. Um, the interpersonal side of it too, that you picked up on. I mean, there, I mean, that is so much of your practice and there's so many layers to that. What is it that, well, let me back up. There are strengths and weaknesses for the fire service and for the personalities that come in. And I feel like one of the biggest things that is a strength for us is how we are able to detach, right? We can mm -hmm. remove emotion from the situation. We can come into the situation, calm it down. And we bring that maybe into our personal lives when things get stressful or when uh, maybe we should be a little bit more animated or have more connection with the people that we care about. It's really easy to distance and remove ourselves when things get stressful or we're tired or we're beat up or maybe they're stressful and tired and beat up. You add kids into the mix. There's a lot to that. So speaking from your experience, how can we best break down those barriers and create more connection or how do we identify those red flags when they're happening, you know, just in our own heads? Yeah, that is so common. Um, I don't know very many of first responders, especially the ones I sit with that don't struggle with that. So um, very, very common. Um, what I like to call it is um, defrosting and then um, like heating back up to go back to work. There's this really strange um, shift that has to happen with first responders where when they get home from work, there needs to be a period of defrosting where they're able to turn back on, like you're saying, their emotional side of them, the interpersonal side of them. Um, because at work, if you are good at what you do, you are able to completely turn it off. Um, you're able to turn off your own um, personalization of what you're seeing, what you're experiencing, and to a, to an extent, right? I mean, sometimes you get calls that just hit home for you or, you know, we're human, we feel things. But 
for the most part, you've been trained to be able to compartmentalize or to shut it off, like you're saying, or to put it away so that you can focus on the task that's at hand. So you're used to doing that for, you know, however many hours you work on, you know, 24, 48s, whatever. There's tons of overtime. So you guys sometimes work more, more days than you showed in a row. Yeah, for sure. So, yeah, you're training your brain. Like, this is how we deal with with problems. This is how we problem solve, right? This is how we stay focused. You do this for so many hours, you might be at work more than you are at home sometimes. So your brain is already in this mode. So then you come home for a couple of days, and somehow during your drive home, and some people don't really have a long drive home, you're supposed to be able to just flip the switch and be, you know, husband and dad and emotional present being and problem solver in a very, very present way. And that is not what you've trained your brain to do this whole time you've been at work. Also, the fact that you are training your brain to do this on a very like intense level of hypervigilance. So it's almost magnified like what you're doing. Um, it's it's like a positive, um, like you, you're backing it up. You're telling your brain this is what we need to do in order to survive because you're in this survival mode when you're working a lot of times with the hyper, hypervigilance. So when you come home, um, and let's say your wife or your spouse or your partner is like, hey, we need, to, we need to have this discussion. I'm really upset about this or whatever it is. It's easy for you to go offline, like you're saying, or check out because that is kind of how you, you compartmentalize. That's how you manage, right? Sure. So very common. Then the other side of that is ramping back up for work. I, um, a lot of my first responders, they usually struggle more on the front end of coming down from work, but there's also this ramp back up for work, right? Where a lot of them have a hard time sleeping um, because you have to ramp back up to this level of hypervigilance again. Um, and so the night before your wife wants to chat or be intimate, like it's really difficult to get on that level again because you're internally trying to get back on that level of being able to compartmentalize again. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you mentioned hypervigilance. I have actually heard that word being used a lot for those that are, that are um, maybe seeking some type of help or therapy or counseling. And for those that like aren't as familiar, I mean, I think we know like maybe the dictionary term, but yeah. could you dig a little bit further into hypervigilance? Like we know what it is at work, but when does it show up in our personal lives in a not so healthy way? Like how does somebody identify that? Like, Oh, okay. I shouldn't, this really shouldn't be turned on right now. Yeah, it comes from our flight or fight response. So um, when this happens, our heart's beating a little bit more. Um, we stop blood flow to certain parts of our body and we get very like solution oriented, problem solve. So that's obviously the benefit of it when you're at work. It makes you guys good at what you do. When you get home, if you're not able to turn it off, it can, gosh, it can look like a lot of things. Um, it can look like the inability to slow down. Mm -hmm. I, a lot of my firefighters, I'm like, what are you doing on your days off? They're like, oh, mowing the lawn and, and fixing. I, oh, yeah. build a shed. Is that you? Oh my God, that's me to a T. <laughs> yeah. Cool. I'm like, why are you building a shed on your day off? <laughs> <laughs> yep. yep. Do you not know how to relax? They're like, oh, that's how I relax. So yeah. hypervigilance, everyone has it. That's a first responder. It's not, um, I don't think it's something you can run from it. It's just a thing. <laughs> Um, so with it, right. So inability to relax, um, always needing to problem solve, always needing to, um, focus on something. It can look like for some people, a little more severe, um, a lot of anxiety when they're off work, um, lack of motivation, um, poor self-esteem, uh, struggles with your interpersonal relationships at home, 
and then trouble with sleep. And then the last thing, which I've talked a lot on different podcasts is um, the inability to be intimate with your partner. That's also yeah. a really big um, side effect of hypervigilance and not being able to turn it off. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. You have a pretty extensive list. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's a little alarming. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, man, I totally fit the bill with the to-do list. Just like constantly on the grind. It's hard to shut off. I've gotten a lot better with that. And I, I, but that's, I see it. That's so common. It's absolutely so common. You just, you, you fill your days. Um, I feel like the, uh, problem solving thing is also fairly common. Um, and I see it show up in relationships where I'll just use myself for an example. Like maybe I'm the person that's like, Hey, I'm a guy and I'm a firefighter. I'm going to go into solutions mode as my default when actually I need to step back and think about like, how can I better empathize and show compassion for the situation instead of just going straight to solutions? Cause there's, that's a lot of time people don't want solutions. I think mm -hmm. Simon Sinek was uh, just talking about this. Like, I don't need you to talk to solutions. I just need you to sit in the mud with me right now so I can decompress and know that you're here for me. Um, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, speak on that if you could. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, gosh, um, I don't know if you know, but I, um, I run a, a group for first responders, spouses or partners. Awesome. So I, with the 10 week group, I'm about to start another one, but it's, any spouse or partner of a first responder. And I can't tell you, I think if I were to guess, it's probably like 90% of my spouses of first responders who were saying that very thing. Yeah. My husband, my spouse is constantly trying to fix and problem solve and they need them just to sit and listen. Yeah. Right. I don't need them to solve all these things. I need them just to sit and be, but again, you've trained your brain. This is a, a plus B equals C at work, right? 100%. You have all these different, you know, things you follow and obviously you adjust with, with different circumstances, but at home you try to apply that a lot of times too, because it's hard to shift back and forth. Yeah, sure. The, as we're kind of digging deeper into these red flags, you've already mentioned some of them. Um, when, how do we identify these red flags? Like if we're getting to a space where we're not managing ourselves well on our own or with our relationships, and we're like, hey, I need to take that next step into seeing a professional. How do we identify those red flags within ourselves or maybe help mm -hmm. someone that we care and love about that we work with? How do we help them identify it for them and do it in a way that supports them and not shuts them down or turns them off or, or scares them? Sure. Yeah. I forgot a red flag. A really big one too is irritability. I see that one yeah, yeah. more just like little noises or, you know, any little thing, things misplaced in the house, dishes not being done, irritability through the roof um, is one of the big red flags too. But um, yeah, let me, let me take that in too. So um, if you are the first responder that is recognizing these things and it really takes, unfortunately, I feel like I get the people that are like so burnt from it that have been doing or having these symptoms for a long time. And either someone has pointed it out to them or their spouse is like, you need to go to therapy or we're not going to be able to make this. Work. Sure. I get a lot of those. I'm like, yeah. I got um, just, a, I think a handful of them this week where um, I'll get a client and I'll say, Oh, how did you find me? Oh, well, my wife listened to you on a podcast. And so yeah. she says, I need to come talk to you. <laughs> so, so a lot of times it's not the first responder. Um, sometimes it is. And when it is, it's usually um, a long time coming yeah. that 
they they could have come earlier to prevent some of this, but it usually isn't the case. Um, because of that idea of, and I would like to say that it really goes hand in hand with toxic masculinity mm-hmm. of that I'm a man, I don't cry, like I, you know, handle my shit and, and do what I'm supposed to do. Like, I think that that goes hand in hand with first responders that are men mostly too, right? Yeah. Absolutely. So we don't really sit down and recognize when things are not going well. But if you were to stop and take some inventory, and I would, anyone listening, I would recommend that you do this often after every shift, if you can, or, you know, every tour, um, and check in with yourself and be like, okay, am I feeling really irritated? Um, Am I having a hard time relaxing? Am I having a hard time sleeping? Am I always fighting with my spouse when I get home? Um, Am I feeling really lonely um, when I get home? And I would rather be at work. That's a big one. I have a lot of first responders that are like, I would just rather be at work than home right now. Tons of overtime. And I'm like, okay, that's a, you don't have any spots to decompress if your, your decompression is work. Right. So that's the first thing I would say, take an inventory. If you notice that you're kind of tipping to an unhealthy level on one of those subjects, or maybe a couple of them, it cannot hurt to to call a therapist. There is nothing wrong with you if you call a therapist. Okay, I'm a therapist. I have a therapist, and that says a lot. I am not here just to make money, or I think that therapy works just because I'm in the field and this is my living. I it has worked for me. Um, obviously, it works for my clients. We need a space that is non judgmental mm-hmm. to really decompress. And um, a picture that I really like of therapy that I use a lot is like, if I was like, Hey, Josh, did you see in your house, you've got some pretty gnarly cobwebs? Like, did you see them? You'd be like, Oh, yeah, Destiny, like, there's cobwebs up there. I just can't reach them or haven't gotten to them yet. I'm in my house. Of course, I know they're there. Now, if you never go outside your house, and I go outside, and I'm like, Josh, your gutters look like crap. (laughs) Like, Did you (laughs) in your house? (laughs) Um, I'm sure it doesn't. It's all good. <laughs> right. No, I, it's on my to-do list actually that I'm going to finish <laughs> later. So if I, if I went outside and I was like, Josh, your, your gutters look like crap, but you never go outside. You would come outside with me and go, Oh, I never realized that they look like crap. Cause I don't come outside. That's what mm-hmm. therapy is. We all have blind spots as humans. And I like to, it's not because we're broken or insufficient or unable to solve our own problems because we all like to feel like we can solve our problems. It's just that we are not able to get out of our own heads and and see things from a different perspective. So my job is to, another analogy is to like put, you give me puzzle pieces and I'm putting them together. And as I'm learning more about you, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then my job is to turn the puzzle around and be like, see, like this <laughs> And more often than not, people are like, Oh, okay. That makes yeah. sense. We would not have been able to get to those conclusions on our own because we, we're not able to see all the blind spots. It's impossible. Sure. No, that's a fantastic analogy. And so much of the work, um, well, it's, it's, uh, I don't know a 50 fifties right word for it, but like we have to show up and actually be honest with you. And at the same time, like, yeah, you're putting these pieces together and yeah, like you said, flipping around, that's a great analogy. Um, yeah. I'm going to push it back on you a little bit. Um, and what are some red flags for the therapist? And what I mean is not from what you're seeing. Um, I've had a couple, I don't say horror stories, but I've had friends in the fire service that go actually to see somebody, they try to get help and it is not beneficial. Um, 
uh, I mean, just like in any organization, I mean, the human element is at play and there could be the bell curve of what you get just within your field, just as we, we have in ours, you know, not every firefighter is fantastic. So, um, you know, we've had people that suffering through a major incident, like, Oh, just use here, use a fidget spinner. It sounds like you'll be fine. Like just use something like somebody was really told that, or somebody was like, um, dealt with a major incident. And it was like, Hey, just take some time off. I think you, you got this. And they, they didn't or, um, or the people that are, aren't showing up truly with themselves. They might be not being completely upfront with the therapist. And then they're in therapy for years and years and years and years. And there's no growth and they're kind of holding each other hostage. Um, the common trends that I've seen, not saying it's common at all, but it is kind of pushing back on you a little bit. Like what are some of the red flags that we see? Like, this doesn't sound quite right. And I feel like I need something more like what is that? What, what is that for you? Yeah. Yeah. Good question. Um, great question. Actually. I, I always ask when I get new clients, have you done therapy before? And if they're first responders and they've said yes, a lot of times I get these stories and it cringes me yeah. to the core every single time. Yeah. Um, so let me just say this, that we all have, we're humans, right? We have different personalities. Um, and finding a therapist, it's really important that you like your therapist's personality. Sure. That they, that you, if they're not someone you feel like you could sit and have coffee with, then you're probably not going to get a lot of work done. Um, and it doesn't matter the age, right? We all have preferences. I personally like an older therapist that looks like a mom. I've tried to see therapists that are my age and it, it's fine, but it feels like pure conversation. That's my own personal. Yeah. And some people prefer having male therapists over female or, mm. you know, maybe they prefer someone that has children or is married. You know, I, we all have preferences. So that that is normal and okay. So if you are not vibing with your therapist, and I always tell my ther my clients after first session, hey, the ball is in your court. If you don't like me or my personality, or there's something about you that really irks you, that's fine. It's not going to hurt my feelings because it's so important we have that. If we don't have that connection, my work is not going to go very far and your time is going to be wasted and money, right? Sure. So um, also I want to say that um, I don't, I'm not underneath any kind of EAP system. I don't take insurance. Um, and the reason that I don't, there's a lot of reasons I don't, but one of the big reasons um is because people want to come to therapy um, and not have the track record of coming to therapy. And a lot of times yeah. through EAP, they do keep some kind of a track, even if it's confidential, it would still be able to be dug up um, through your department or they would have to clear it through your overhead that you're coming and using mental health resources, right? Sure. So um, I know I don't think that was related, but it came in my head. <laughs> No, no, I appreciate you saying that. Um, I have friends in other public safety sectors that work for three letter agencies. And that is a common, common thing that they tell me is I either can't or I won't, or I have to find a really off the wall, not fringe, but like very far removed from EAP or my line of work because it will absolutely go back and it could affect my job hundred percent. So I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm glad you said that. Yeah, yeah. I even with like insurance stuff, right? They sure. they keep track of that. A lot of my police officers I see, you know, even like military, they don't want that on their track record. So I do get a lot of that. Um, sorry to bring back what you were saying. So 
One of the biggest things um, in looking for a first responder therapist is the ability for them to be able to hold space and sit with details, right? So um, I would like to say that I am very familiar and comfortable and skilled in sitting with gory details, um, distressing details. I can sit with a lot of emotions. I've had clients just cry for 50 minutes and I'm comfortable and I'll sit with you. And like you said, someone to sit with you in the mud. Um, if your therapist is unable to do this or you find them saying things like, um, oh, can you not talk about those details? It makes me uncomfortable. Or I don't know if they're, I hope they're not therapists that say this, but that would just, yeah, red flag run. Sure, yeah. um, not okay. A first responder therapist first and foremost needs to be able to hold space for our first responders. And my clients need to feel like I am able to hold it. Um, and I have a tremendous amount of self-care that I have to do in order to dump it because um, I am a dumping ground for a lot of this stuff. Yeah. And that, like you mentioned in the beginning of the podcast, is what I like to show on my Instagram is this is what I do to dump my stuff <laughs> so that I can care of myself and be really good for you. Um, so that's important. Um, also, it, quick solutions, I would be really um, – that's kind of a red flag for me, like – with mm -hmm. uh, EMDR, you know, we're going to maybe dive into yes. a little bit. What yeah. um, a red flag is if a therapist is trying to dive straight into EMDR the first session or the second session without knowing you or getting to know you or getting any information. That's a red flag for me. Um, also, there's different styles of therapy. That's also important to know. Just like there's different personalities. Um, I really encourage my clients, if you don't like a style or a, a you know, a modality that I'm using, please tell me. And I'm also very upfront with my clients where I like to share what I'm doing with them. I'll say, this is, this is what we're doing. This is why I'm asking you this. This is why I'm having you do this exercise because this is the outcome of it. And if we don't get that outcome, then we need to scrap that and work together. That's my style. Not every therapist is going to have that. Some therapists are very um, quick to try to solve problems. Um, and I, I'm very solution oriented and, and I like to, you know, have goals and solve them together. But I also want to take the time to get you. I think interpersonal um, relationship is important. And then lastly, um, you know, um, with like a good personal trainer, I mean, you you work out and you coach and stuff. Mm -hmm. You Your goal is not to keep your clients um, forever, right? Your goal yeah. is to teach them how to live and work out properly and then send them on their way and then get new people that need that. Same thing for a good therapist. My goal is not to keep you for years and years and years and years if we're not doing work. Yeah. My goal is to teach you how to do the work and go along. And if you need to come back for a tune-up or you need to come back for something that pops up in your life, you're more than welcome to. But there's no reason why in my modality, in my practice, um, and how I am as a therapist should keep you for a long time, especially if we're not working on things. That's just clearly unethical. So yeah, sure. those are my I feel like... This is so refreshing. You have like just outlined this crazy, awesome protocol and, um, yeah, I, I, we don't maybe see it enough, but for the people that have like found themselves turnover to they have done the work. It's, I feel like it's directly in line with the, the traits that you just mentioned. They have the therapist, like you said, I think it was a great analogy that you can sit and have coffee with, um, just one right out the gate, but, um, yeah, holding space for you not providing the quick solutions. Uh, and yeah, 
I, I like what you said there towards the end is helping us understand the why of what you're doing. I think it's going to create more trust and we just have a greater awareness. I mean, I think that's yeah. a good way yeah. to live by just in daily living is just to help understand the why of what we're doing. Yeah. I hate the idea of like a therapist being this, like I'm up on this tall chair looking down on you and taking notes and analyzing your brain. Like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, naturally, I am analyzing things in order to explain it better to you. Sure. But I don't ever want it to feel like a judgmental thing, which is probably why I do therapy right here on my couch. Usually, <laughs> it's a hooded sweatshirt or like a sweater. I'm not super stuffy. Like, yeah. I am very free, and I like to make my clients feel comfortable. Like, like I said, like we're sitting having coffee together because if you are not able to be vulnerable and comfortable and you feel judged or analyzed by your, your therapist, then there's not going to be that, that trust. Um, yeah. I, I think that relationship is something that's really big. It is a relationship. And a lot of times we can heal the way that we deal with other relationships in our life by the way we interact with our therapist. So I always tell my clients, like, if there's something I did that ticked you off or hurt your feelings or upset you, please bring that back to session and let's talk about it and let's repair that because that teaches people that would usually shut down and walk away from those things in their life. It teaches them it's okay to repair. It's okay to have awkward, uncomfortable conversations in a space like this where I'm trained to not get upset and mad at you. (laughs) Sure. Sure. That's so so vital. Um, yeah, I, I absolutely appreciate that. Um, that, that, that two way, that two way street, right. That, that conversation, that back and forth, because you're going to hear things if this goes the way it probably should, that you're, you may not like to hear. Um, and not that you're pushing back, but having that communication of, ah, that really didn't sit well with me. And then you can Mm -hmm. actually hash that out. And like you said, uh, I've certainly experienced that You, you show up in all your relationships better because of the work that, you know, you're sitting and doing with, with that other person. Yeah. You asked me earlier too, um, and I didn't answer What do you do for someone that um, needs to go to therapy or a coworker? You notice this, they need to talk to someone. How do you tell them? Yeah. Um, yeah that's a one. Yeah. I want to answer that real quick. Yeah, I think thanks. the first thing is um, telling someone you need to go to therapy is not the way to do it. Um, I think that that's weaponized. And I see that with even spouses sometimes it's, <laughs> it's a punishment almost like, yeah. Oh, I'm in therapy jail because my wife made me go to therapy. <laughs> yep. Yep. Therapy is a privilege. Um, it's oh, it I really like is. I mean, yeah, it's a privilege. We, how many of us get to, to? And it's not because it's an expensive thing, but more so because like we get we we get the opportunity to to you know have this space, this like very sacred space and time. Um, to work on these really deep parts of ourselves in this very like trusted vaulted areas. It should be right. Confidential. Um, Not everyone gets that. So it is a privilege to be in therapy. Um, Secondly, I wouldn't tell someone, Hey, you need therapy. I would say, Hey, I've noticed that you're more irritable lately. I've noticed or whatever it is you're noticing. I noticed at work, you look, you seem really tired. Are you getting a lot of sleep? I just want to check in with you, right? Being on that personal level. How are you doing? Do you, you want to talk about it? Um, they might say yes. They might say no. If they say yes, then I would say like, have you considered after a conversation, have you considered talking with someone like, you know, it's, there's really nothing shameful about it. Like I heard about this person or that person, like here, let me share this with you. No pressure, right? Just here's some resources if you want them. Um, Also, it doesn't have to be therapy. I know that there's a lot of um, 
and then like hashtag buddy check and um the what's the other one um the overwatch collective has like a, a buddy one too where it's not it's not um therapists but peers or other first responders that are there to talk with first responders so if therapy is something that you're just naturally get the ick about and could never see yourself doing it there's other resources to sit and talk to someone um but I think that's the most gentle approach we can't make we can't make anyone go to therapy yeah, right sure, if, we, sure. if we could we wouldn't be in therapy ourselves because most of the time <laughs> people that aren't so yeah right right no i love you say don't weaponize it and um it's a privilege i really like that um i i remember during the pandemic it was a nightmare for people to try to find resources right i think it's opened up largely and a lot of fire departments now are actually bringing in um like occupational therapists into their jurisdictions like we just hired one in ours and already you know they're they're seeing people um so yeah. Yeah. I like what you said there. It's, it's certainly a privilege. And you said the Overwatch Collective, there's, you know, the peer support teams, I think critical incident stress teams used to be a thing. I think they were trying to change the verbiage on that into more of like the peer support team. So there's that. Um, <clears throat> it's something that I speak on and actually I have one coming up uh, with some of the growth mindset podcasts that I do online where you ask somebody, I think it's very easy to get transactional, like, Hey, how you doing? And you just, you know, you come up with just a off the cuff, you know, you're just kind of filling dialogue, but yeah, I encourage people to be like, no, 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 like, no, no. How are you? How are you really? Like, let's let's dig in on this and you can't force your will or force people to answer. Like, no, I'm, I'm going to force you to like snuggle with me, empathize with me. You know, we're going to talk, we're going to talk this out, but to actually dig in and say, no, I want, I want deeper meaning I, I really truly want to know how are you it's not just a flippant oh hey, how's it going like talk to me open up what's up and i think that yes you have to have a trusted relationship there um there has to be some security there but um sometimes it's all it takes though yeah, and yeah. genuine concern right gen- yeah exactly exactly mm-hmm. yeah even from a spouse genuine concern not a judgmental like oh you need to go to therapy but <laughs> about you like the i you know notice all these these things popping up and and i care about you and i love you and it's concerning um have you thought about talking to someone you know outside of me because sometimes it's hard to talk to our you know friends or spouses oh yeah i mean even co-workers right yeah yeah uh yeah we'll get right into emdr we mentioned that i know uh i've used that form of therapy in line with some other stuff that we were doing and it was um phenomenal. I didn't know what to expect. People tried to explain it to me and I thought I like, okay, this is voodoo. Like I didn't know what the (laughs) heck was going on going into it. Um, but it's such a cool practice and it's, and it's, there's so much research behind it. Um, I I don't even want to say too much because I'm just going to mess it up, but it's, it's amazing stuff. Like please dig in on the, on the research and the practice and what it is. Yeah. I like to explain, uh, EMDR very simply because there are all these big terms in therapy and psychology and it's ridiculous to me because um, how are we supposed to understand or show our clients and have them understand and not be afraid or intimidated if they don't get it. Um, And I think a lot of people are scared of EMDR. The first thing I get asked is like, are these, and when I do it in person, um, which I don't anymore, but I used to, are are these going to shock me? Like, are you wiping my memory? Like, like you said, (laughs) right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it does sound a little woo woo-y. And um, 
I'm very, uh, I like to back my things by science. So EMDR is backed by science and backed by a lot, a lot of research. Um, And what the letters stand for is um, EMDR. (laughs) What does it stand for? (laughs) (laughs) Eye movement, desensitization, reprocessing. And um, it sounds like a mouthful, but all that is is all the steps of EMDR together. So um, let's break it down a little bit. Um, Eye movement. So there's something called bilateral stimulation. And if you were in person with your with your therapist, they would most likely give you these like buzzers that you hold in your hands and they vibrate back and forth. It's just like a gentle vibrating feeling, but it's like a pulse kind of like a back and forth feeling. Um, If you were to do it in person or I mean online, which I do, my whole practice is online. Um, you would activate bilateral stimulation in other ways because I can't hand you these, you know, things through the computer, unfortunately. Um, So there's a couple different ways to tap. The most common way to tap is by crossing your hands over your shoulders and you just tap back and forth. So what bilateral stimulation is, is it activates the left and the right side of your brain at the same time, which we don't do when we're thinking. There's the side of our brain that processes um, emotion and the side of our brain that processes um, information and facts. So it, it uses both of those at the same time when we're able to tap both sides of our body on either side or use the buzzers. Some therapists will use a light or like sound. There's lots of ways to activate the bilateral stimulation. A couple other things bilateral stimulation does is it's really soothing. It's like, um, yeah. like people are so afraid of EMDR. They're like, is it going to make me feel <laughs> horrible? I mean, it is difficult just like any therapy, but, um, and I'll get to that, but it is the most gentle approach to therapy for multiple reasons. And one is because this bilateral stimulation, it's like, if you have a kid, you know, you like yeah. pat it on the back or rock it back and forth, um, or like similar to rocking in a chair it calms your nervous system. Mm-hmm. So that's another thing it does. And the last thing it does is it helps you to recall things that are in your subconscious or like the back of your memory. So a lot of times, um, if we were to just talk about a critical incident, you know, you might forget some stuff due to trauma. Our brain is really good at blocking things out in order to protect us. Whereas our body doesn't do that. It remembers every single call and every single traumatic, traumatic situation. Our brain blocks things out to protect us. So, um, EMDR and bilateral stimulation can help us to activate the parts of our memories we might not have. So um, that's the first part of EMDR. Yeah. That's the eye movement part. Um, another part of this too is if I were to ask you to recall a memory, um, you would most likely, most people do this, put their head, their eyes in the, the top of their head and they kind of like shift back a little bit like you're searching for a memory. Yeah. Um, that is the eye movement part of this. When you close your eyes and you're doing this tapping back and forth um, or you're using the buzzers, your eyes will naturally shift back and forth. And um, Francine, the woman who created this, um, this is the woo-woo part. Uh, just, <laughs> I'm good, I'm good with it. Listen, Francine, I don't know what drugs you were on. <laughs> she saw a leaf like floating <laughs> through the like the wind or something back and forth. And I don't know if she was anxious or something was going on with her, but she realized that the back and forth movement of her eyes following the sleep was very soothing to her. Mm. So that's a big part of the EMDR. That's the E, right? Eye movement. I guess the M too. Um, (laughs) (laughs) 
um, the D, desensitization is the other part of EMDR. So once we get the tapping situated, um, let me let me stop for a second. And this is this is so compound. So tell me if you're not tracking with me at any point because oh, there's good. so many different. Yeah, yeah. You good? Okay. So um, what EMDR is as an overall before we get into the des desensitization part is um, it cannot wipe your memory. It cannot um, like make you forget things. What it the goal is is when we see something traumatic and we are all different. Let's say you and I or working together and we, I don't know, we pulled a baby out of the back of the car that was unresponsive, right? Um, I don't have children, so maybe it was just another call for me. For you, maybe you have a kid that same age and it was really traumatic. And so for you, you'll start to have maybe some signs of PTSD or acute stress disorder, um, which is, you know, trouble sleeping, thinking about this child a lot, um, feeling overproductive towards your children at home, having a lot of anxiety, trouble eating, um, irritability, all the signs of PTSD, right? Mm -hmm. So I can't say who's going to have trauma and who's not. It's different for every person, the way that we take things in. So let's say you took it in and it was traumatizing towards you. So my goal with EMDR, if I were to have you as a client, would be to take this memory that you've put on a shelf in your brain marked trauma and we're going to take it off of that shelf and we're going to process it together. Yeah. And then the goal is to put it back on a different shelf of just normal memories that we have come to terms with and that we've already processed. And it, again, you're not going to forget about the incident. It's always going to be there. But the goal is to not have all of those really intense feelings and emotions linked to that anymore. So we're like severing um, any like negative emotional ties and we're replacing them with like um, an acceptance or an understanding a lot of people it's realizing they've done the best that they can and they just need to leave it um so that's what it is we're we're just reshelving our memories from trauma to already processed and put away yeah no fantastic um, so the, beautiful way to summarize that i appreciate that and that's kind of how i've heard it summarized and you cleaned it up even more that was great okay good it, it gets confusing so that, i'm hoping it's clear yeah, so yeah, so the desensitization process. Um, this is the part that can get uh, challenging for some people as a client because it can be emotional. So instead of us talking about all the details of the incident, uh, I'm going to have you internally process it. So this is a way of, it is exposure therapy. So I am re-exposing you to the most heightened part of your emotion over and over and over and over again until you are able to sit with it and process it and um, and cope with it on your own. That is my goal. So as I am bringing up these really heightened emotions and memories for you, I'm also going to be aiding you in how to calm yourself down. Yeah. Um, there is a really loud lawnmower by me. Can you hear it? <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't hear it, but it's okay. It's, it's like coming by me. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right. It's not overpowering at all. It's all good. Okay. Super loud. Um, so, um, lost my of thought. With that, it's really important that um, you trust your therapist. It's a leaf blower. Hold on. <laughs> it's all good. <laughs> we'll totally Is it not? 
I got loud there for a minute. We can totally edit that out. It's funny. He's like right in my window. Like, come on, dude. <laughs> I don't usually work on Wednesday, so I don't have to deal with it. Yeah, yeah. No worries. <laughs> I'm used to like dogs or mailmen. This is the first. Yeah. Yeah. I live on a golf course. Um, so I feel like some of the like yarn maintenance stuff is obnoxious, but it's on Wednesdays and I don't work Wednesdays. Okay, go away. I might even go tell him to go away. He's walking. <laughs> it's all good. Okay, yeah, check this out. <laughs> <laughs> okay, better? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay. So the reprocessing part that we are talking about is re bringing you into that heightened state and teaching you how to sit with it and cope with it. Um, and then obviously we're reprocessing it. So this is the part that I think people are the most afraid of because a lot of emotions will come up. Um, but if you are sitting with a good therapist, they will pull you out of that and they will bring you into, um, a coping mechanism or a meditation or something that will bring you calm again. So my goal working with EMDR is never to let my clients leave super activated or full of emotion. Yeah. Um, they're going to have some kind of like lingering feelings with EMDR because it's really heavy work sometimes. Yeah. Um, and a lot of the processing happens outside of session too. But my, my goal is to be able to bring you into a calm state of relaxation when you leave. So I use meditation a lot. I'll ask someone, um, what is, if I were to ask you like what your calm, safe space, what would that be? A lot of people will say the beach or the mountains and I'll lead them through this, like all five, you know, six senses of like, um, or five senses, (laughs) six, all five senses of, um, you know, what do you see when you're at the beach? What do you smell? What do you taste? And it helps ground you back to reality. And then the last thing I do is, um, I'll ask my clients to leave it with me and we will kind of like have a pretend container. Like we just went through all the stuff. You're going to leave it in the container with me. I'm going to put a lid on it. I'm going to hold on to that container for you. And when you come back, we will open it together, but I really want you to leave it here with me in session and try to do something to change the channel for yourself. Um, and uh, that is EMDR in a nutshell in a very like, I don't even know how it's, it's so in depth. That's how I can. Yeah. Explain sure, it no, yeah, yeah. I'm sure we can nerd out on the research for quite a while here, but the, uh, the way you summarized it and yeah, the shelf analogy was fantastic. And me having experienced it myself, I think you, you hit the nail on the head. It was super, um, definitely hard work, but like you said, you have a, an awesome guy that's working you through that. And we even did the container thing if we needed to. I remember afterwards, it can be uh, it can be exhausting. It can be happy. You got to be a little gentle with yourself sometimes, but um, definitely helps. Sh- like you said, shake things loose and you know move it to that different shelf for sure. Yeah, um, I also have this analogy of EMDR, and it's kind of a gross one, but I can't think of a better one. It's kind of like a plunger. It like plunges all the stuff that is out, you know, inside of you that you've been holding on to, maybe in your shoulders and your neck and your chest, and you feel it emotionally it takes it out. So that's why a lot of people have these big emotional responses is because we're plunging the crap (laughs) out of ourselves and we're purging it. We're getting it out. Um, And that's also why some people will feel a lot lighter or better after doing EMDR as well. Oh, 100%. 100%. Um, 
I know we're cranking on about an hour here. I want to um, hit like one, maybe one or two more topics and we'll, we'll uh, yeah. get some things wrapped up. I mean, your Instagram page is called on being resilient. And so much, I think of being a, someone who's in public service. Um, I, th- I feel like something that I try to preach and that makes you a well-rounded firefighter is being a resilient one. And we can focus on strategy and tactics for the fire service or, or, or law enforcement, however you want to, whatever sector you're in, it's very easy to, to spend a lot of time on strategy and tactics and occupational stuff. But, uh, the, the fitness, the wellness, secure relationships, decompression, how you regulate, these are things that, these are some items that make you more resilient. Right. Um, and actually the podcast I just sent you, uh, recently the back half of that the gentleman actually kind of spoke on that and especially for those that have experienced trauma he kind of broke it down into thirds like there are a third that hey maybe this whatever trauma it is they they sit with it for a while and maybe it's a thing that they need to they need to constantly work on there's a third that after therapy treatments whatever it might be uh there's that middle group that hey we're back to normal you know we're back to our baseline we're doing good and then there's this other third that because of that response, because they did the hard work, they're now stronger and more positive and better for it on the back end. Now, I'm not saying, hey, let's go out there and experience some trauma to hopefully become better for ourselves. But um, that is a component of res- resiliency, I feel like. What what does that mean to you? And how do you preach that? And how do we like quite literally p- practice that or have uh, best practices and skills for mm-hmm. becoming more resilient. What does that look like and how do we do it? I don't have a fancy answer for this. It's actually a very straightforward answer that I love it. Um, it really comes down to self-care, which again, I that term I think is cringy for especially men, but for a lot of people <laughs> because on Instagram and it it has been taken out of proportion for many other ways. But yeah, let's just break that down. Like exercising, you already hit all these exercising, eating healthy, getting enough sleep. Um you know, hanging out with friends and family outside of work, um, therapy, if you need it, um, you know, all of these things, getting, getting enough sunshine, that's overrated. We need to have that right. Fun, fun fact to throw in there. If you're ever trying to reset your circadian rhythm, um, the best way to do it is to get sun at the middle of the day when the sun is the brightest and the most intense. And if you were to sit outside for 10, 15 minutes, 30 minutes, if you can, reading a book or just sitting there having coffee or having lunch, um, it can be enough to um, reset your circadian rhythm and help your sleep. So things like that, um, you know, really, really help. Uh, When you get into this unmotivated spot where you're not exercising, you're eating like crap, um, you're going to feel like crap. You're going to perform like crap. You're not going to get along probably with people around you. Um, You're going to feel depressed. You know, and it really like what we put in our bodies has such an effect on our brain and our mental capacity. And so um, it's so, so important to be always taking care of yourself as a human, but even more so as a first responder. Um, And remember that it is normalized that you sit with all this stuff all day long and you see all this stuff all day long. But it is not normal. Right. Do you remember? um, Just real quick. Do you remember? that uh football game recently where the guy um had to get cpr on the field everyone oh my gosh these first responders are so amazing giving cpr (laughs) and then all my 
responders were like, we do that like 10 times a day. Like we do that and go on to the next. And I think as a world, we were like, whoa, like that's so crazy. They do this so much. It's such an intense thing. First responders a lot of times don't realize that they do carry a very heavy load. And I think that it's important to remember that about yourself. And I have to for myself too, right? We do it. It's normal. It's just what we do. It's not a big deal. But we have to, have to, have to practice unloading it. And that's what I like to show on my Instagram is like, I I work out every day. I lift weights. I do Pilates. Mm-hmm. I walk my dogs. I sit outside. I go to the beach. I hang out with my family and friends. Like yeah. I read books at night. I have to do this stuff in order to function as a well-rounded person. Because if I'm not taking care of myself, there's no way I can take care of other people and and same for any person in a helping industry. Like you have to have a full cup to pour out of. If you're pouring out of empty, you that's where I'm seeing a lot of burnout in the field too. So really simple, but also take some self-discipline to do that as well. But once you're it's fine. It's just getting the ball rolling. That's hard sometimes for people. Yeah, yeah. No, you said it. That's something I uh, I say quite often is you can't pour from an empty cup. Like you're not going to be good for, for other people as well. Um, yeah. At what point does it become... Yeah, you kind of touched on it. Uh, this has become like selfish or too much with the self care. Cause we're very quick to say and in the firehouse, it's almost like a joke, like, you know, half gallon of ice cream, hashtag self care, you know, like there, we can very quickly like come off the rails with that. I mean, something yeah. obvious. Um, at what point is it, may it not be so obvious, but it's actually kind of detrimental. Um, I would think about like, um, what I see a lot is, and especially cause I work with the spouses too, is when um, the the husband will come off of a really long shift and maybe go golfing and drinking for lots and lots of hours, not come home and like reconnect with their family first. Um, That I think could be problematic for some families, not all. Um, And I don't say this in a way of like, it's bad to do that. You should go out and golf. Like that is actually golfing is amazing because it, it is, active but it makes you feel calm you have to focus very similar to like shooting at a shooting range right you have to be able to be very aware of what you're doing um and i I love that for my first responders that's perfect but when your self-care comes in the way of relationships or you're using it as a way of escape because you don't want to go home and deal with kids and a wife that needs things and has needs that need to be met too that's when it can become a problem um Overindulgence, obviously, with alcohol, I see a lot. Um, And I was just talking to a client this week about it. I was saying, I understand why first responders drink. You, you know, it 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 shuts it up. It turns it off. It turns it down. It's a quick way to turn that knob down. Um, There's other ways to do it, and it's harder. And I think that a lot of responders take the easy route. That's a slippery slope, as we know, and that's a whole nother topic. And um, when that gets out of hand, everything else is going to get out of hand, too. So um, I think that's what the downside of overindulgence looks like with self-care. Yeah, and that's a good word for it to sum it up is the overindulgence. Um, As we wrap up, is there anything we need to be mindful of for uh, our women in the fire service? I know sometimes Mm -hmm. it is definitely a male-driven uh, occupation. And that is certainly uh, changing, at least in our area. And I am so fortunate to rub elbows with some of the, the ladies that I do. They're absolutely amazing. And I take them with me anywhere. What, what Are there any things that we need to be 
I, as a guy in the fire service need to be more, uh, mindful of in just the way I communicate or operate or talk about these things. I love that. Um, and that's such a good, uh, such a sweet question to ask. I, I get a lot of female first responders, obviously because I'm a female therapist sure. and so they might be more comfortable, but, um, yeah, I think that the biggest thing that I hear from them is that, um, there is this, right, as a woman and as a first responder, you have to keep up with the um, the standard that men have set, right? And if you, if you don't keep up, you are really ridiculed, especially in like wildland fire, but um, yeah. probably also in, in normal fire too. Oh, for sure. You know, women are seen as like annoying or, um, you know, too bubbly or like these women really have to turn on their mask their inner like masculine sides yeah. in order to fit in with everybody else. Yeah. And um, I hear a lot of them say like, there's no room for like my feminine side, which is really a gift if you think about it. Oh, sure. Yes, first responders, women need to use their masculine sides in order to, um, you know, do a lot of things in, in that. But also the, the soft and nurturing side and the more emotional side that they're able can actually be an asset for this, um, especially, you know, patient care and um you know being there for one another i think that women naturally have more nurturing elements to them in their personalities not all but some do and that can also really make the department or the crew feel um a lot more at home and closer to and i think that um as far as like helping women um i think just like treating them like humans and not different (laughs) no ball but such like that would be, yeah, top of my list, you know, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, recognize their differences and honor their differences, right? Yeah. They're not men. So, and they're probably trying really hard to maybe even overcompensate sometimes and shut down their feminine sides in order to fit in with everybody, mm-hmm. but they have differences for a reason. And those are strengths for a reason. And just like those are strengths for men, they're also weaknesses for men. So 100%, yeah. Yeah, that's what I got on that. <laughs> yeah, no, I appreciate that. Um, sometimes you have to work twice as hard to get half as much recognition. And for mm-hmm. much so, for so much of what we do, it is EMS. And that's when you're in the most personal spaces in people's homes. And that's when we do need to flip on some more uh, nurturing and, and empathizing qualities. So oh, yeah. um, I think you kind of already hit it. I was going to give you an opportunity just to talk about, like, we throw a lot at you. Um it's kind of the role you fill with, and we both fill just being in service oriented industries, occupations, you give a lot of yourself and it's easy for me to take from you. So how is it best? Like, how are you decompressing and how can we be mindful of you and all the stuff that we throw at you? And you kind of did hit on it. Like you, you have to decompress from all the things that we put on you sometimes. Yeah, yeah I do every day. So, um, I guess the things that I do and I, I show a lot on my Instagram also in a way of um, I like to share my personality and who I am. I want my clients to know. I don't want them to be this big mystery of like, who's my therapist and what does she like to do? Like <laughs> I want you to get to have a dog. She's my best friend and I like to go to the beach a lot and my family like surfed and we go outside yeah, and just normal. Guy. I like, yeah. I think it makes um, us feel closer too, right? Because you are dumping a lot on me and sharing with me, but as a therapist, I'm obviously not, it's not a friendship. I'm not back and forth, like sharing things with you. That's my way of sharing things is through Instagram. So, um, back to your question. I, um, I don't work Wednesdays. Um, I work Monday, Tuesday, Thursdays, and Fridays, and I work from 10 to four. 
And so that gives me time in the morning if I want to go to the gym or if I want to do a Pilates class before 10 to do all that, have breakfast and just be like ready to come to my seat. So by 10 a.m. I'm like already awake. I've had coffee. I've worked out, you know, I've like cleaned up my house. I feel organized and I sit down and I'm like refreshed and ready to sit with you. And I have the capacity to, to do that. That's how I function. Um, and then when my brain's starting to turn off around four, I'm done. So yeah. at the end of my day, I always, I leave my spot. This I do therapy in one spot in my house. Mm-hmm. Um, I used to sit at a desk. It was hurting my back. So now I sit on a couch. Like, <laughs> Good for you. Sitting at a desk. Like no one's in my house. Like they don't know where I'm sitting. I have a lovely plant behind me. So <laughs> I'm, um, none of my clients have been bothered by it, but um I will shut my computer down. I will walk away from this spot in my house. I like to go um, to, in order to like change the channel. I like to go walk my dog. Um, I will like cuddle with my partner. Like that has been something that's like a decompression for me, just like breathing with someone or like having someone hold me after a long um, bunch of clients in a row. Um, I will exercise again. Sometimes I exercise twice a day. Yeah, cool. I need to get it out of my body. Um, and then I'm really big on like um, uh, what I eat. Um, I'm not perfect, obviously. I love all kinds of stuff, but I like to try to feed myself accordingly. And then um, I have a nighttime routine that I'm pretty, I stick to it. Um, I read a book for 30 minutes before bed. I stay off my phone um, and I um try to go to bed at a certain time. So I'm getting like eight to nine hours of sleep, which is a lot for some people, but for me, I need it to function. <laughs> yeah, sure. yeah. So, and then on the weekends I, I have, I turn stuff off, you know, I'm always available. I'm always reachable to my clients, but um, if it's not a situation that needs to be addressed right away, I have those boundaries where I'll reply and tell my client like, Hey, let's save that for a session this week. Yeah. Or that's a great idea. I love that you reached out to me or I'm sorry you're struggling right now. Like, is this an emergency? If you, if you can, I can step away, but if it's not an emergency, then let's save this. Um, I have really good boundaries as far as that goes. And that helps me to turn work off when I'm not working, um, and just focus on being me. So yeah, that's (laughs) awesome. That's great. Yeah. Boundaries are key. Uh, is there, I guess, what are some of the, ways like if people wanted to connect with you i know you mentioned your instagram and this 10-week group if you wanted like here's an opportunity just to give yourself a shout out like where, where can where people find you yeah i'm trying to spread the word on the group because i need enough people to start it um get it going but so the group is um tuesday nights from 8 to 9 p.m um, pacific standard time yeah. and yeah. it is on zoom and then um, that is for spouses or partners, so girlfriends. Um, doesn't have to be women; it could be for men as well. Of first responders. So if you're listening and you think your wife would benefit from this, um, send her my way. They, um, anyone can reach out to me um, on Instagram. It's on underscore being underscore resilient. Um, and then my email is Destiny Morris, my first and last name M O R R I S, and at or Destiny Morris Therapy at gmail.com. Um, uh, email is fine. I do have a link to my psychology today page in my Instagram as well. And, um, as far as individual clients, I offer free 15 minute consultations over the phone. So, um, that can help us me to hear a little bit about what you want, what you're looking for in therapy, ask you a few questions and then answer any questions you have, um, about like payment or anything like that. I also want to say that 
Therapy can be expensive, um, and I understand that because I don't take insurance. I can offer something called a super bill, which is when I ask your insurance company to reimburse you for your out-of-pocket or out-of-network expenses. And some, um, like the local 1014, I think is what it's called, insurance has been really good. They'll reimburse my clients for what they're paying. Um, Sometimes Anthem, sometimes not. It really depends. Kaiser sucks if they can't do anything for unfortunately. Yeah. Um, but on top of that, I work with an organization called um, the Overwatch Collective, and it's a nonprofit that raises money for first responders to see me and a couple other therapists um, of your choice. So um, with that, what that looks like is they pay for the first three sessions completely. Then after that, they pay 60% of the next five sessions. Um, and it's a, it's a tier. So after okay. 60%, it goes down to 50% five sessions, 40% five sessions, and then all the way to 10. And if at any point you need more aid because you need to continue and we're working on something that's more long-term, then they can always, um, we can always send in a request to keep you at a certain tier for a while. Um, they are such givers. It's their heart. Um, they don't turn down any first responder or first responder spouse. So, or a child of a first responder. So any first responder family that needs additional help financially with therapy um, can go to them. They have men and women therapists and they're working on getting therapists in every state. Um, I am in California, so I can only see clients in California. Um, But there are other, I think a couple other that they're trying to get from different states right now too. So that's a really good, um, just to kind of put it in your pocket for anyone that is looking for therapy, but doesn't want to Yep. or is unable to, to spend the money on it. Okay. Yeah. Fantastic resource. I had no idea. I'll be sure to follow and check that out. That's uh, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's always a, a thing. It's just the barrier to entry sometimes is, is the only limiting factor, but it's the major one. Right. So that's super yeah. awesome to hear about. Um, well, Hey, this has been amazing. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. I love being here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely.